Thank you again for listening to our podcast today. Thank you so much for your support. We worship on Sunday at 10 a.m. here at St. John's Lutheran Church in the heart of downtown Martinsburg, West Virginia. Know that you're always welcome to our table and to our worship. God bless. And we hope you enjoy today's message. So three years ago, I was getting, we were getting ready to have Thomas. And we were preparing by making sure that all of our services were ready. And this is at a time of Easter. So I was having to prepare stuff way in advance, more than I, I normally do. And Bishop Regal was filling in for me on Easter Sunday. And we got to discussing what he, what he wanted to do in the liturgy. And asked that the Kyrie be sung. And I hesitate because I normally don't include the Kyrie on, a, on, a, on the Sunday of Easter. I was also the pastor of two churches before this, before I came here. And so I had to be done in an hour so that I wouldn't be late to the next service. Because if I was late to the next service, it usually wasn't like people get upset about that. So the curie was typically on the chopping block every week. If I had to pick something that the, from the liturgy so that we could keep it within the time frame, the curie was often cut. So I pushed back on a good bishop. I said that it was Easter. We didn't need to sing the Kyrie because we just spent three days in constant prayer. In constant prayer for these things. But his reply, and I'll never forget it, shouldn't we always be praying for these things in the Kyrie? For peace, for our salvation, for the whole world, for the well-being of the church of God, for the unity of all. For this holy house, for all who offer here their worship and praise, and that God would help, save, comfort, and defend us. Yes, even on Easter Sunday, when we joyously celebrate the resurrection of Jesus, we should stop and pray for these things. These prayers that we say week after week are often seen as not necessary, as something that we just say for the sake of good order, simply because we have always done it that way. I mean, I used to feel that way about the Kyrie, but you all taught me differently. These prayers that we say, they're very old. The word Kyrie is Greek. Every part of our liturgy has a Latin name. Agnes Dei, Santus, they're all Latin names. Kyrie is the only Greek name in our liturgy, Greek word in our liturgy. Think about it. The early church spoke Greek. This is a holdover from the early church. Think about the early church gathering in homes, gathering at a time when it was not safe to be a Christian, gathered, gathering in hidden places, gathering and praying these same prayer petitions that we say still today. Because the concerns that we have today are the same that were 2,000 years ago. Yet today we enjoy the freedom of being able to pray, Lord, have mercy and relative safety and peace. We pray with no fear of a Roman soldier crashing through our doors ready to arrest us and drag us to our deaths. These prayer petitions still have relevance. They still hold power. And we say each petition each week with our response being, Lord, have mercy. The same response said by the leopards walking close to Jesus. They call out, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. Kyrie. They were forbidden Leopards were forbidden by the laws of the day to live in town with the people. They were seen as unclean. The laws of the day would not allow them to live with the general population. The law was a good law to have in order to protect everyone. But it meant that those who contracted leprosy would often die alone in the wilderness, alone and isolated from the people they love. They begged Jesus to have mercy on them. 
How many of us, when we say the Kyrie, beg God to have mercy on us, or begging God week after week? How many of us feel like these words that we say week after week are just an idle tale holding no meaning? They're just something that we do because it sounds pretty. Imagine saying these petitions, the same conviction and hope that these ten leopards say their petition with. Lord, have mercy on me. Save me from this disease. Let me go back to my family, my friends, my life before I contract this disease. Let me be normal once again. Let me be healthy once again. Let me have my life back once again. Lord, have mercy on me. And their prayers are answered. Jesus says, go and show yourselves to the priests. And as they went and while they were walking, they are healed. One person notices that they're healed and returns to praise Jesus. The rest don't. And they have been villainized for many years, many times over. Yet notice in the story, Jesus tells the entire group to do something. The entire group of lepers. He says, go and show yourselves to the priests. The other nine are doing exactly what Jesus has commanded them to do. You know, you can't have your cake and eat it too. You can't say one week, you know, always do what Jesus tells you to do. And then the next week, well, only do what Jesus tells you to do when it involves worship. When it doesn't involve worship. Now, these other nine men did what they were told to do. And they should not be chastised for obeying a command of Jesus. The thing we should be focusing on is the one who returned. The Samaritan. The foreigner. The enemy. Some history about Samaria would be good here. The region of Samaria, along with Galilee to the north, had once comprised the northern Israelite tribe who separated Judah in the 10th century BCE in order to establish a rival monarchy. Two centuries later, these northern tribes were conquered by the Assyrian Empire, which transported distant Mesopotamian peoples into their region, resulting in centuries of intermarriage. From a Judean perspective, these de- developments led to a kind of ethnic compromising of the already alienated branches of Jacob's family tree. Over time, Samaritans developed their own religious traditions, emphasizing devotion to Torah and affiliation with the sanctuary on Mount Gerizim near Shechem. In 128 BC, the rivalry turned especially violent when Judeans destroyed the Samaritan sanctuary on Mount Gerizim. In Jesus' day, hostility toward Samaritans was still strong enough that Galilean pilgrims often bypassed Samaria en route to Jerusalem, even though it added considerable time to their journey. After the fall of the temple in 70 CE, it was the Samaritans and the Pharisees, again, two enemies, Samaritans enemies of the Jewish people, Pharisees enemies of the early Christians. These two groups of people came to the aid of the Jewish people. They were the ones who kept the Torah front and center for the Jewish people after the fall of the temple. They taught that worship did not have to happen in the temple in Jerusalem, but could happen at the local level in synagogues, as it does today. Luke has a thing for Samaritans. Between the Gospel of Luke and the book of Acts, there are numerous stories involving Samaritans. And this is a bit odd considering Luke's community most likely would have been made up of Gentiles and not Jewish converts. Which means that Gentiles would have no idea about the intricacies of this feud that they've been having for many years. They would not hold the same animosity towards Samaritans as the Jewish converts, say, in Matthew's community would hold. 
Yet, Lukean theology has Samaritans playing a key role in the universal significance of Jesus' mission. In Acts 1.8, Jesus says to the apostles as he is being lifted into heaven, You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all of Judea, and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Jesus seems to envision Samaria as a kind of threshold between the Jewish homeland and the and worldwide ministry. Meaning Samaria was necessary in the proclamation of the gospel. Yet at the time, Samaritans were seen as the enemy by the Jews, Jewish people, even though they share a common ancestry and heritage. And before we go and judge these two groups of people, my brothers and sisters, remember we have a common ancestry with our Roman Catholic brothers and sisters. They have been not, we haven't been so kind to them over the years. And there have been times we might describe them as our enemies. These types of feuds still happen today. So with all this history now in mind, let's look at Luke's use of the parable of the Good Samaritan. No other gospel has this parable. This parable, this powerful parable, identifies the nearby Samaritan enemy as the neighbor whom Jesus' Jewish hearers are called to love. The Good Samaritan is not only the object of neighborly love, he is also, and perhaps more importantly, the exemplary subject of neighborly love. Thus we find a narrative development in Luke from love your enemy, which happens in Luke 6, to love your worst enemy, i.e. the Good Samaritan, to see your worst enemy no longer as your enemy, but as an agent of God's love. Luke, throughout the Gospel, is building a case for indiscriminate love and radical inclusion. The Samaritan leper mirrors the Good Samaritan as a loving subject, but with this crucial difference. While the Good Samaritan is the subject of neighborly love, the Samaritan leper is the subject of godly love. And the surprise is that one showing the love of God is the least likely person to do so. The greatest outcome of the parable is the fact that the foreigner, the foreigner, came back to give praise to God. I'm sure Jesus and the other disciples were taught their entire lives that Samaritans do not even know how to worship. They were taught their entire lives awful, horrible things about the Samaritans. Some probably true. Most were probably overly gross generalizations. To see one of them return and give praise to God for what has been done is the most powerful part of this whole story that we often overlook. How many of us have been taught things about our enemies? How many of them are true? How many of them are false? How many, of us, how many of us would be surprised to see one of our enemies walk into our church this day and worship with us? And don't get me wrong, I'm guilty of doing this myself all the time. I find it hard to be in a room with some other Lutherans, let alone Baptists and Catholics, you know, our so-called enemies. But God has this vision where all nations will know about Jesus. God has this vision where even enemy territory will know God's son, Jesus. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all of Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And as we approach the 502nd anniversary of the Protestant Reformation, at the end of this month, I encourage each of you to find ways we continue to go, quote unquote, in the enemy territory. What places need to hear about God's Son Jesus that we are scared to go into? What places do we avoid like the Jews avoided traveling to Jerusalem, avoided Samaria? These are the places that God wants us to go into 
and proclaim Jesus. To be witnesses of these things which take place here week after week. And you will be surprised to who responds to the good news of Jesus Christ. And you should celebrate that our enemy is no longer our enemy, but a fellow co-worker in the body of Christ. Maybe you are the self-assured disciple who needs to hear Jesus' praise of the Samaritan leper. Or maybe you are the Samaritan leper who can only praise God and thank Jesus. Whoever you all know that you are welcomed here in this place. To learn about a man named Jesus who died for your sins, was raised on the third day, and promises each of his followers life and resurrection. Despite the fact that you might be a foreigner. Despite the fact that you might be the enemy. Or despite the fact that you might just be a plain sinner in need of God's forgiveness. Amen.